if I haven't met you before, my name's James, and um, I'm part of the team here at City Church. And um, I have the honour and the privilege of speaking about Brexit uh, this morning. I know you envy me. Um, but today uh, is the beginning, really, of a four-part series that we're doing together called We Need to Talk About. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be looking at four different uh, big uh, issues or topics in society and think about what the Bible says about them, uh, how we approach them as people living in the 21st century in Bristol. How do we deal with these issues? So we're going to be looking at Brexit and politics today. We're going to be looking at the questions around transgender next Sunday. Uh, the following week, we're looking at uh, our broken society, the kind of economic divide that is so prevalent in our, in our nation. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, anxiety. Uh, and so we want this to serve you uh, and help us as a church think about these things, but also uh, to the city as well, who have so many questions, people in our neighborhoods and communities who have questions about that, these kind of things. And we want to be a church that holds out the word of life and, and bring a message of hope to these very difficult and often complex uh, issues. Um, and so uh, I'm really looking forward to this series. It's, it's going to be fantastic. It's a great opportunity to invite people along to. So I would encourage you uh, to do that. And so uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Brexit and the wider political uh, climate at the moment, particularly, I guess, with the call of a general election in, in a few weeks' uh, time. And so in a few minutes we're going to be opening the Bible to think about uh, how we as Christians approach it and what it shows about ourselves and uh, the world we live in. But before I do that, a, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, the huge privilege of having Marvin Rees, who is uh, the mayor of Bristol. Uh, he's a Christian, uh, and uh, he came in and uh, visited us a couple of weeks ago, came into the office, and we interviewed him. We, we gave him some questions to think about, and uh, we recorded it. And so we're going to play the video of this interview that Andy did. It's about 12 minutes long, um, and so it's, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic interview. We actually spent about two hours with him, just chatting with him, and he was so generous with his time. Um, so please uh, kind of focus, listen to what he's saying, and then I'm going to pop up after and share a few things from the Bible. Marvin, Mayor of Bristol, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's great um, to have you here. It's great to speak to our congregations this morning. Thank you. Um, Marvin, we're just interested in you as a person. Um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about your story, a little bit about how you've come into politics, how you came to be a mayor, maybe. Can you speak to that a little bit? So I'll try and squash it all together. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I do, I'm always very frank about my story. Um, born in 1972, uh, Bristol family, white woman, unmarried, no money. Uh, and I say that because the advice she was given before I was born was that she should have me aborted. Um, and then that echoes through life. Once I was born, the advice was if she was a good woman, she'd give me up for adoption. Um, and those themes echoed through, really. Um, we lived in St. Paul's, uh, lived in a refuge in, in Exmouth for a little while, came back Lawrence Western and then Eastern. Uh, but all those experiences I had as a child, looking at the world and feeling it's unfair, uh, just kind of gave me that, that sense inside me of how can I make the world fair. Hmm. Um, managed to get to university, um, again, taking those experiences, mixed race, racially fractured city, unequal racial tensions of the 80s, 
navigating all that. Um, and then start to put it into practice about how I can have a career. And if various options were, were, were locked off to me, but then I went to work for Tier Fund, Sojourners in the United States, and Jim Wallace, again, what is Christian politics? Went to Eastern with Tony Campolo, Ron Sider. Um, and then it was politics or journalism. I came back, worked for the BBC, left that after a few years, um, but met people and started to pursue a, a route into politics. I, I was thinking about MP, mm. but those options didn't come through. And then in 2012, some, when Bristol voted for a mayor in a referendum, someone said to me, you should go for mayor. Mm. <laughs> I'd never thought about it. And I said, oh, okay, anyway, put my name forward. Within two weeks, I was going 100 miles an hour. Lost in 12 and obviously ran again in 16 and one. Yes. And so being here in Bristol as a Christian mayor, um, how, how do those things kind of come together in your in your daily experience of being the mayor of Bristol? How does, how does your faith and your experience, how does that kind of bite on a daily basis? Well, it's an interesting image, even though you put your hands together because they're not separate, sure. <laughs> you know? It just is me. Um, it's an outworking. Um, the outworking at this moment in time is being mayor. You know, in 10 years, it could be something else. It could be journalism, it could be being a teacher. But at this point in time, it's an outworking as a mayor. Um, so my, there's, a, there's a fantastic speech by Obama from 2004, uh, Call to Renewal, which is what I worked on when I was at Sojourners. And he says um, to the room, if someone comes into a room and they have faith, don't ask them to take their faith off and hang it on the hook because they come in. Right? That's not them. Who would Martin Luther King be without his faith? Who would Fanny Lou Hamer be without her faith? Right? He says also, likewise, if you don't have a faith, don't come in and pretend to have one. Sure. You know, I mean, he makes a little joke about politicians clapping out of time to gospel music in churches, sure. <laughs> pretending they're down with it. So for me, this is just an outworking of who I am um, and my desire to see the world fairer, to be good news. I've always been drawn by uh, Jesus in the temple told in all four Gospels, which means it's an important story. Yeah. You know, turning a, a house of prayer that should have been, you know, a world that should have been a house of prayer for all nations to turn into a den of thieves. And how do we reach into a world that should be for all people and has been turned into a tool of exploitation and inequality? Uh, and I want to get involved in that, changing that. Fantastic. Marvin, politics in this country, for many of us, we see it on our screens every day. It seems like a pretty caustic place to be. Can you speak a bit to that? Obviously, the Brexit debate, the kind of the single issue politics that's, that's that we're facing uh, kind of daily. I think a lot of people are wondering how do we navigate that as as believers. Yeah, loads I could say on that, but let me say two, and I'll try and remember both of them. <laughs> Firstly, it's a real privilege to disengage from politics. The point I constantly make to people who then constantly put down politics and say, I'm not having any of it, is that um, the people who most need politics to work for them are the poorest, right? right? They don't have recourse to private funds if this education system ain't working to go and uh, send their kids to private schools. If housing isn't, if affordable housing isn't being delivered, that they can afford a more expensive house sure. uh, anyway. If the public transport system isn't working, they can just get themselves a second car and motor vehicle. They need the political system to work for them. Um, and so I say it's incumbent on those who are less dependent on the political system working to stay engaged in the political system um, and make it work for poor, for poor, poor people. Um, and is it um, Arnie Graf, who's an organiser from the US, says power abhors a vacuum. I always get this quote wrong. I think it was a theologian said it. If you leave that space empty, something's going to fill it. Mm. If you are not stepping in and shaping positions of power, the cultures that stand around positions of power, 
something else will. So absence from the political game is not a neutral act. Um, but what I'd also say is that politics is caustic at the moment. Yes, not, that it, yes. not that it had a high point. I mean, if you were in the civil rights movement in the 60s America, where people were lynching people and getting, getting away scot-free, you know, you wouldn't have said politics was at a high point. But there's clearly something going on at the moment where um, people are taking advantage of disillusionment and hopelessness. Um, they're taking a lot of advantage of a, a political dialogue that takes simplistic one-dimensional approaches to complicated nuanced issues yes. and butchers them in the process. Um, but I would say that we're all and we're all we all are complicit in this. I think there's a very easy narrative that blames politicians. Right. And I'm not apologist for the political system. It has not served me uh, and my family um, historically. But I'd say this, right? This whole thing about conflict and anger is something we're all part of. Journalists may say, if they're honest, they've got to drive the advertising revenue for their product. Sure. That means that people need to click on their stories. What stories do people click on? Conflict. Obama writes about this in Audacity of Hope. So we click on conflict. Journalists serve up conflict. The number of times I've said something that has some nuance to it and the way it goes in the paper is I attacked or this and never. So, so journalists create conflict because that's what people want. They serve it up. Then politicians know that if they enter into conflict, they're rewarded with publicity. Right. So actually we're all part of this thing. You know, We, we are serving each other and, and in, in the process, politics is really spiraling down but not just politics actually it doesn't sit in isolation the whole tone of our society I think is paying a price I think there's a massive opportunity for the church there um, to again don't let it go step into that space um, and begin to uh, begin to uh, um, demand ask for publicly a better quality of civic discourse from journalists and politicians and members of congregations Fantastic. Thank you so much. Mm. I mean, I was going to ask, how could we, and maybe there's more to this than you've, you've already answered, how could we as a church, how could the Christians who are watching you right now, how can we engage? What, what two or three things could we do? I mean, you talked about we can demand a better quality of discourse. Mm. We, I'm sure many would, would echo that and think, oh, wouldn't that be great? How do we actually do that? What do we do tomorrow? to make that more likely? And are there other things that we can actually engage in? We're quite an active church. People are used to uh, acting faith out, actually yeah. making making a difference or believing that they can. What could you say? What can you say to us? What could we do to make a difference? So let me just put it in context. One is I'd say is that one of my favorite proverbs is you blind guides, you strain gnats and swallow camels, right? We got our own projects. And I think in many ways, and particularly when I was at Tier Fund, you had this debate, so verbal pro proclamation and social action, right? Yeah. That's gone now, I think. People realise you've got to do something as well as yeah. uh, talking about it. You can't just uh, uh, say love, you've got to be love, right? And, and all that. Um, but I think I think it's about growing in sophistication okay. as well. Doing projects is good, yeah. but we've got to get involved in systems. Okay. So Jim Wallace wrote this, right? I'm pulling babies out of the water. Someday I've got to go upstream and find out who's throwing them in. Right? Mm -hmm. What is the process that means I have to keep rescuing people? That's policy. That's politics, right? So I just think that impacting on tone and culture is massively significant. You don't get the immediate gratification, uh, but but you're impacting on those people. I think there's something I've been asking the churches to think about a lot is the price the city pays for the toxicity in the way it talks right. uh, about itself at the moment. Um, and the way, I mean, you look at my Twitter feed, uh, it is just, 
it's, it's not even political criticism often. It's not a policy criticism. It's just, it's, it's almost hate. Sure. Um, I, I'm, I hope I haven't been unfair in using that word hate. I did tweet someone the other day and I said, I just looked at your profile and it says you love kindness and social justice. Right. Because this person has been tweeting me for about three years with a real negativity. And that, funny enough, they haven't got back to me. But right. maybe they did look at it and go, oh. Um, and I've said to the churches, you, you can start tweeting. Just pick people up and just say, I've looked back at your Twitter feed. You are constantly negative. Do you do that with your family? Is that what you teach your children? And just begin to not attack, but just point out to people as a, as a different way. I think you could um, you could write letters to the papers on the online newspapers, like just the 24-7 or the Bristol Post, and start to make statements about the kind of value, the qualities you want uh, from, your, uh, from your political leaders. And I think if you talk to candidates for the upcoming elections mm. and say, um, policy position great, we also want to know how you got there and we want to look at the way you go about debating, you're really sharper minds. I think people don't always realise just that you are, you know, I think one day God will say, and this is my sense, I've said this to churches, when they say the world's going on and, and around us, and I think God may say to you one day, we go up and we say, why do all these bad things happen? And he'll say, I gave you a massive organisation, right? Brains and a democracy. Hmm. You chose not to line them up to change the system in which you lived. <laughs> why are you blaming me? Hmm. There's a lot of uh, influence can be had by the churches. And I don't mean creating a theocracy, as sure. some of my online trolls are kind of saying. I'm not saying about that. I'm just saying being a force for good. Mm. That's superb. Thank you so much. I'm, I think there's much for us to think about. Can I ask you another personal question? Mm. What, what's next for you? What's the next step? You're up again for election, I believe, next May, is it? Yeah. Um, and then, well, hopefully, certainly, you'll become mayor again. And that, but then what? What's the plan? What's the hope? I have to talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... I'm just reading Michelle Obama's book. Uh, my wife read it a while ago because uh, there's, a, there's a great line in it that made me laugh because your family pay a heavy price for this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, well, pastors' families do too, right? It's, I don't have a unique position in being a leader in which the, the demands of time and, and the pressures and all those things, I'm not unique in that sense. I mean, lots of us that share that. But there is a conversation to be had with my wife and, uh, and my kids and making sure I'm a good dad in the middle of all this as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm up for election next May. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully, um, in terms of house building and focusing on poverty and sustainable development, we've, we've done enough to show people that we care and we're real about it, we ain't told lies. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll see what comes out. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we shall watch with real interest. Marvin, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real privilege and an honour to have you speak to us. And uh, you have much for us to think about. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you. Uh, that was so interesting, wasn't it? So fascinating to hear uh, from him. Some really helpful points there for us to think about, in, you know, in terms of who the political system works for, particularly challenged by that, uh, what we can do as a community in terms of our voice into this uh, conversation and, and, and even thinking about policy and how we get involved in that, some really helpful 
uh, things there. Um, in a few minutes, as I said, we're going to just read a few uh, passages from the Bible together. In fact, one of them has already been read this morning in our worship, which tends to sim- kind of signify that God wants us to, to know something together. So that was encouraging. Um, and uh, what, uh, let me tell you what I'm not going to do first. Uh, I'm not going to uh, necessarily share how I voted in Brexit or how I will vote. I'm not going to suggest how I think you guys should be voting in the general election. And I'm certainly not going to make any kind of grand statements as to which side God might fall on, whether he's a Brexiteer or a Remainer. Um, but uh, what I am going to suggest is, is what Brexit shows about ourselves, uh, about our world and our hopes and our dreams. And I want to suggest that or encourage us that whichever side of the vote you fall on, uh, in your, our reactions to Brexit have revealed, amongst many things, two key things. The first is that we're all searching for certainty. We're all searching for certainty. So if you cast your mind back uh, on the 24th of June 2016, was one of those days I will remember where I was when the Brexit results uh, came out. I was, uh, at the time I was a teacher and we had what we call an inset day, which is an in-service training day. I think it was on safeguarding or first aid training or something like that. We're, we're sitting in the hall, we're listening uh, intently at what's going on. And then all of a sudden, uh, a colleague just kind of cries out, we're leaving. And for a moment, we just thought they were bored of the training and just needed to to leave. Um, But then we realized what they were really talking about. And at that point, the training stopped. Uh, The BBC News was beamed up onto the screen and we watched it for the rest of the morning, which might explain the state of our school at the time. Um, But we watched the news and the results unfold. And it's hard to believe that that was three years ago. Uh, And since then, we've had three prime ministers. Donald Trump became the US president, and Kanye West has released an album called Jesus is King, which I can't stop listening to. So all sorts of things uh, have been happening since then. Uh, And uh, in the lead up to this Sunday, I just wanted to remind myself of uh, the voting statistics of Bristol. And you might find this interesting how Bristol voted in the Brexit referendum. Um, So 62% voted to remain and 38% of Bristol voted to leave. When you break it down by ward, so the different areas, here in Cotton, 82.5% voted to remain. Uh, In Redland, just up the road, 82% voted to uh, remain. Horfield, 66% remain. Easton, was 76 remain. Southmead was 48% remain. In Bishopston, up Gloucester Road, it was 80% remain. And so just by going on those kind of statistics of, of the local area, but also people that come to this church, it would be a fair assumption that many people, or even perhaps the majority of people, uh, that might resemble some of those statistics. This site might resemble some of those statistics. And while those Statistics might reveal something of the diversity of Bristol and why different areas of Bristol have favoured leave over remain or vice versa. We have to be careful when approaching 
this subject that we don't think, well, this kind of message is for the leavers, and they need to hear it. Or on the other side, these, this message is for those that voted remain in their naivety. We're not trying to sort people out, and we're not trying to target a, a particular group. When it comes to what we're going to be looking today, it actually applies to each and every one of us. We are all in search of certainty. And whether you realize it or not, we put our hope and our confidence into things in life. Uh, and so we're going to look at that uh, now. But you know, since uh, that time three years ago where the Brexit results came out and we've had extent extensions for a deal being accepted, uh, a conservative leadership campaign, now with a general election coming up in five weeks, it's clear that the patience and goodwill towards politicians is waning. You've now got that, I don't know if you remember that cult quote from Brenda, the Bristolian lady, who when the BBC came up to her to let her know there was a general election, she came out with the words, you're joking, not another one, which is just, it's that kind of mentality now, isn't it? Every time we turn the TV on and we turn the radio on, something else has happened, and you're like, you're joking, not another one. And that catchphrase seems particularly apt as the saga of Brexit has rolled on. And with that, more and more questions and more and more confusion seems to have arisen with a lack of clarity as to what is happening and what is going to happen. And so uncertainty can lead to a range of reactions, but probably more often than not, the overriding response or the overriding reaction uh, to uncertainty is fear, fear of the unknown. When we don't know how something is going to play out, particularly in the big things of life, it can really shake us. When the things we're relying on suddenly change, that can be destabling for us. I don't know about you, but it's often the things I take for granted in life, that when those things are taken away, you can feel uh, quite unstable. It can be the most trivial things, like when the car breaks down and suddenly you've got to try and work out how you're going to get to work. Or on the more serious level, when you get that phone call to say that a family or a, a family member or friend has gone into hospital, and that fear, that uncertainty about how things are going to play out can often lead to fear. It's a little bit like concussion. Uh, I used to play a little bit of rugby and I remember as a 14 year old boy being absolutely trampled over by a huge prop and just standing up and trying to work out why I, was, why I wasn't thinking and couldn't really see and wasn't, couldn't really work out which way was up or down and when, and when the things that you're relying on get taken out it's a little bit like that. You're just trying to work out what you're supposed to be doing. Uncertainty can produce fear. And it's a horrible feeling on a personal level, but we can also feel it at a national level too. Uh, fear leads to all kinds of things we would find unattractive in others, but excuse ourselves when we're afraid, like name-calling or smug superiority, assumptions, aggression, anger. All those kind of reactions are often reactions to fear. And whilst Brexit perhaps isn't the life or death 
situation that the media is making it out to be, there is a sense that the unknown nature of what might happen is stirring up a sense of fear amongst people. And you see, the problem is it's very hard to find the kind of certainty we long for. It's, it's hard to find that because it's, it's hard to find something that won't change. No relationship, no career, no house or trust fund, as Marvin was talking about, no political party or setup is beyond being swept away. That's what you've experienced if you voted Remain and found that the majority of the nation disagreed with you. Or in voting Leave and then finding that Parliament may end up not delivering what you were expecting them to do. And that can shake us. It can make important things uncertain. And it replaces confidence with fear. Wouldn't it be great if there was a way to live with certainty? To know that what matters most in life can never change, no matter what happens. In Psalm 46, which Sarah Evans read earlier, it's it's a poem that was written perhaps 3,000 years years ago, and the writer sees a similar level of chaos and uncertainty around him. And he says these verses that are going to appear on the screen in Psalm 46, verse 2. He says this, We will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. That is supreme confidence, isn't it? The psalmist can get up in the morning look out the window and see that the most unchanging things in the world are collapsing. He he compares whatever he is seeing happening to the mountains crashing. He compares it with uh, the floor shaking like an earthquake. And he can see all of that and he can say, I'm not afraid. Things will be okay. Imagine walking through life with that kind of confidence. And as I've been thinking about that, the more I've thought about how the psalmist could, could say that with all those things crashing around him, I've realized that the key to you having something to rely on that is beyond the mountains and the sea. Outside of this creation, the key is finding that thing that, that is untouchable by any change within creation. You see, the psalmist gets his confidence from something else. And we see that actually in verse 1. In the verse before the verse we've just read, it tells us where he gets his confidence from. It says this in verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Here is a confidence that is very realistic about life. They're not trying to cover over the problems. Life is not always straightforward. There is no naivety or uncertainty from the the psalmist's point of view. But what he does say is that we can also be confident in life, knowing that God is with us and he's bigger and he's stronger than the mountains and the seas and he will never change. This world can fall apart, but God will not. Because he never changes. 
If you know God is unchanging and that that God is with you, then you have a deep certainty, a deep confidence that can't be touched by leaving or remaining or mountains falling into the sea or earthquakes around you. That is what the psalmist is trying to say to us. I believe that's what God wants to to say to us and even ask the question, where are you putting your confidence in or who are you putting your confidence in? Because those things in the world can change. They can be taken away from us. But the God who sits outside of creation never changes and we put our confidence in him. We need to look in the right place for it. Not to Westminster, not to Brussels, not to ourselves even, and the kingdoms that perhaps we try and build, but God, and only God. And so it's clear, even as the Brexit saga has continued, that actually each of us are in search for certainty. But the second thing Brexit has shown about ourselves is that we actually all want to be on the winning side. I don't know too many England fans yesterday who actually wanted England to lose. It, it's one of those things, as a non-Englishman, I was, you know, I was obviously neutral, of course. Um, but there weren't too many English people who wanted the rugby team to lose. And, and, and actually, we, we all, to some extent, want to win. I'm sure you know people who, who take that to an extreme level. And even when they're playing like Connect Four with their two-year-old, they just want to destroy them because they, they're that competitive. And that's, that's probably a step too far. Um, but actually, deep inside each one of us, we all want to win. We want to succeed. We want to be vindicated by the decision that we've made. We want to defend our judgment to some extent. And perhaps that's one reason why we, found, uh, we find it so easy to get heated about subjects like Brexit and, and politics. We, we forget that someone who voted differently to us might have some interesting points. We forget that they may even be right. And at its worst, that, that impulse to feel that we're right and, and must win leads to often unfair caricatures and disdainful rhetoric, a sense of superiority even. Just think about uh, the last time you've, you've switched on the news and you've watched a political debate. I don't know when the last time I heard someone on TV talk about Brexit and say, you know, I could be wrong, but, or obviously there are good arguments on either side, but I, I don't think I've heard that too often. And you see there's, there's something going on that's far deeper than just political debate. I think that for many of us, it's to do with the fact that because of the binary nature of a Brexit referendum, we've picked a side and now we feel because we've picked the right side that in our opinion that we have to defend that side to the bitter end. Once the lines are drawn, there's no room for backing down. And uh, this kind of thing, you know, just isn't just reserved to Brexit. If we're honest with ourselves, when we take a wider view of life, this kind of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? Disagreement, division, argument, misunderstanding, miscommunication, and so on. We as humans hate to be on the losing side. 
And we certainly aren't prepared to give up uh, ground or show any kind of weakness or wavering in our position. The number of times that I was told as a child how stubborn I was, I just didn't want to back down from where I'd even committed. Even if I knew deep down they were right, I was still going to stand strong. The idea that we might ever hold our hands up and say, uh, do you know what, I, I've got it wrong, or I, I want to hear your side of the story, isn't all that commonplace. And perhaps with Brexit, now that it's rolled on, perhaps there is a bit of a sense of apathy in all, oh, I, I don't really care, it's gone on so long now, I just want there to be a conclusion to it. And so when issues start to go further and further away, we care less about it. But just think about some issues that perhaps you are deeply passionate about. It's harder in those instances to back down, isn't it? The things that you feel deeply convicted by, the things that you've built your life upon, the things that if you were ever challenged on that, you'd be like, oh, there's no way I would ever change my mind on this. Those are perhaps the things that we need to talk about. In the, in the New Testament, there's, there's an example of lines being drawn and division happening uh, as an example actually with the Apostle Paul and he, he writes a letter to a church who are experiencing that same kind of division and discord amongst them. There seems to be a bit of a bust up between two members of a church and Paul writes this to the church in Philippi in, in Philippians chapter 4 verse 2. It says this, I plead with Eudoa and I plead with Syntax to be of the same mind in the Lord. Here we find there are some serious disagreement between these two prominent women in the church. And we don't know the specifics of the issue, but it's unlikely this was just a little dispute. Otherwise, Paul probably wouldn't have waded in and told them what they needed to do. He saw it as as an important thing to intervene. And Paul's encouragement and response to whatever the fallout was between these two people is this, to be of the same mind in the Lord. To be of the same mind in the Lord. And in a similar way to the psalmist, Paul is acknowledging the problem, sees that there's a problem, but saying that there is something outside of them that they can access to reconcile their differences. To be of the same mind in the Lord. That somehow, irrespective of their difference or opinions or, or whatever it is that separated them, that it was possible for them to discover common ground or, or to discover the same passion, joy and delight in God. In other words... Paul's antidote or his counter to the division and separation, the winning mentality that perhaps had crept into these people, to, to counter that was to find that which was beyond themselves, to find, to reach outside of, of their situation and find and experience only what God can bring. If you flick back in this letter, uh, to chapter 2, Paul uses similar language. The, the, uh, the words are going to appear on the screen. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, not looking, or rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. You see, at the heart of searching for certainty in life, and at the heart of of wanting to be on the winning side and being unwilling to back down, at the heart of even the division between people, at the heart, in fact, of all those things, security, certainty, is what the Bible describes as pride. It's pride that leads to these things. Pride is is really when we believe that life would be better if it was up to us. If life was better if it was up to us, then it would be far smoother. That's what pride is. Pride is when we want to map out the future ourselves and create certainty. Pride is when we're unwilling to budge from our opinion or our position. And the thing about pride is is that uh, it grows deep. And when it grows deep, it becomes destructive. And so each one of us need to hear need to hear what Paul is saying. He says clearly, because we each suffer from it. And it, pride can mask itself in different ways, but the root is the same. And the antidote to pride, Paul says, he says, if you want to be of the same mind, if you want to have the same understanding, if you want to reconcile your differences, if you want to see relationships improve, if you want to see what Marvin was talking about, a shift in society around you, then we must live lives of humility. He describes it, Paul describes it in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. You see, humility melts the coldest of hearts. It's real, honest, genuine humility melts the coldest of hearts. It breaks walls down between people and communities. It, it dissolves hatred and anger. It brings people together. And he says that this kind of humility looks like valuing others before yourself giving yourself to the interests of other people. Rather than orientating your life around you, it's about serving other people. And you have to ask the question, how much pain and frustration and division might have been saved in the saga around Brexit if more humility had been shown? But the temptation is to level that kind of criticism to the people in Westminster, isn't it? Or our politicians, we can say of them if they only were to show more humility. But I wonder if the same should be leveled at us too. What would it look like for us to live humble lives? You see, ultimately, not only has Brexit revealed what I'm searching for and that the fact that I'm searching for certainty, that I want to be on the winning side, and that I'm right to think and act the way I do, 
more than any of those things, far more significantly, there is a deep-seated pride that I need to deal with. And like I said earlier, we can go some way in dealing with those things to, to treat others well, to, to seek the prosperity of other people above ourselves. But the thing that connects us all is our deep need for God. That's what connects us all. Whichever way you voted, our deep need is God. And the psalmist looked beyond their circumstance and needed God. Paul, in chapter 2 of Philippians, says to this church, you need God. And we see that as Paul describes who this God is and unpacks this Jesus, Son of God, who came to earth to save us, who were full of pride and in need of God. And he sent his Son to rescue us, who would humble himself to a cross, obedient to death, to deal with the ultimate separation and division that would appear between us. And rather than receiving judgment for our pride ourselves, it fell on Jesus. And through his death, we might walk in freedom and in unity. And I think that's what Paul meant when he said, be of the same mind in the Lord. Because in Jesus, we all find forgiveness. We can all find love. We can all find unity. And in that, we are brought together. And so while we might need to talk about things like Brexit, undoubtedly, and as a church, we need to talk about these things. We need to consider how we play our part in the conversation like Marvin encouraged us to do. We need to take hold of the privilege that we have, that we each get a vote. We need to vote in the next election to play our part, to contribute. We need to pray for our leaders at this significant time. But we also need to look introspectively and ask the question, what am I putting my confidence in? Am I trusting in politics to be the winner for me? Or do I need to come to God who is above and over all things and to ask him to deal with anything in my own life? And so as a way of, of responding to that, we're going to take uh, communion together. Uh, but we're going to do it a little bit differently this morning. And I'd, I felt like uh, God wanted to remind us that we are a family together. Um, that wh whatever side you voted on, whatever you're going to vote in a general election, the thing that unifies us is the gospel. That the unity that we share is actually in Jesus and far from any political agenda. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to encourage you. We've got uh, a table here and a table at the back there in the side wing where there's uh, bread and wine. But I'm going to ask you to just go and grab it and then return uh, to your seat. And then we're going to take it all at the same time. It's something that we used to do growing up in my little village Baptist church. We used to knock back the shots of uh, wine together uh, and we used to eat the bread. And I think there is something really powerful when we join together and we say, do you know what, the thing that brings us together is more than our current situation. It is the blood of Jesus. It is the gospel that really unifies us. In fact, it's the gospel that can bring all kinds of different people together. 
and get along and cohabitate and, and be friends and to love each other and to humble ourselves to serve each other. So why don't we stand?